John chapter number 11. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read a little bit of Scripture here. Uh, we'll read down to verse number 44. So you're not wondering how far we're reading. We're going to read a little bit of Scripture. Uh, but uh, we want to get the entire context of, of our passage this morning. John chapter 11, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and uh, her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard thereof, therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Some of my camp workers say amen to that. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now, Jesus had not yet was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, 
for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. When he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for a good week at camp. Thank you for the soul saved, the strength, the peace, the focus, the encouragement, and the growth that we as workers experience. Now I pray, Lord, as we come to this present moment, that, Father, we would have our mind trained upon and fixed upon Your Word and Your will for our lives. Lord, I know You can do a work down here just like You can do it up there. I know that You desire Your Word as powerful here in this moment as it was up there this past week. You saved souls this past week. You can save them this morning if they just come to You and allow You to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Save them from their sins. I pray, Lord, that You'd help us now to have our hearts open to the truth of Thy Word May your will be done in us. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I have preached untold numbers of sermons out of John chapter number 11. And you no doubt have heard untold sermons out of John chapter 11. Most of the time when we preach out of John 11, we look at the miracle that Christ performs upon His friend Lazarus, and we very often will liken it to what God does when He saves a sinner. Uh, You know, the Bible says this, that God's chief problem, His chief issue with the sinner is not that he is an immoral person. It is not that he is a bad person. There are plenty of sinners that are lost, but they are moral people as far as society's standards. The, the problem God has with, with, with lost folks is not that they are irreligious. It is not that they don't go to church. There's plenty of folks that are lost that go to the church house. And, and sadly, there's even some folks that are saved that have given up on the house of God and, and they are paying the spiritual toll for it. But I, I would say this, God's chief issue with the sinner is that he is dead and must be resurrected from that deadness. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, and you have he quickened, meaning he resurrected you. He made you alive. He, he put life into you. You have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so I think when we come to John chapter number 11, man, I don't think there's anything in, in the world wrong with, with taking this text in the Word of God and reminding each and every person that if you've never been born again, you're still dead in your sins. But thank God you don't have to stay dead. Uh, the living Lord, the risen Lord can raise you from the deadness of your sins, give you new life in Jesus Christ. But you know, inasmuch as we make that application, I would say this, that though there is an application in this chapter for the sinner, I think there is also most certainly an application for the believer. Now, I want to be very careful with what I am about to say here. Uh, When a person gets new life in Christ Jesus, that new life is never taken away from them. They are eternally saved. I remember hearing uh, Brother Lester Roloff explain it this way. He said, now, when you got saved and got life, who did you get life from? And uh, He said, you know, uh, the person you got life from is from God. And he said, now, what kind of life does God have? Does He have temporal life just for a little while? Uh, does He have life that degrades and eventually will end in death like, like your life and mine? And of course, the answer is no. God has eternal life. He has everlasting life. Well, if you got life from God, you got eternal life because that's the only kind of life God has. Amen. He gave you eternal life. I believe when a person is saved, they can never lose that salvation for they did not purchase it. Christ purchased it. They did not save them. God saved them through Jesus Christ. And I believe a person that is saved is eternally saved. 
Let me say this, that inasmuch as the life of Christ lives in us and through us, and I believe that to be true, uh, we uh, the, the faith of the Son of God lives through us. There can be varying degrees to which that life is permitted to thrive in us. You could maybe say it this way, that flame will never be snuffed out, but it can certainly be quenched. It can certainly be stifled. It can certainly be limited and shrouded and, and oppressed in our life. And though I'm thankful to say it don't matter how far you get from God, God's never going to throw you away. You won't lose your salvation. It is true that your spiritual life, your relationship with God can wither and die to the degree that if a person looked at you, they wouldn't see that there's anything Christian about you. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter number 6 verse 16. It says, Know ye not, now Paul's writing to save people, and he's writing about saved people. He's writing, he goes on to talk about himself, in fact. And he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. From the saved people, he's saying, in other words, who you, uh, who you uh, employ, your, your, uh, your appendages, your life, your, your will, who you choose to obey. I'll get it said here in a second. I, I got that one. I, I swallowed a frog at camp and it about came back up on me. whoever you yield yourself servants to obey, that's your master. And then he goes on to say this, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Let me say it this way as plain as I can this morning. If you're saved by the grace of God, it is true that the eternal life that God has given you can never be snuffed out and it can never be taken away. But it is equally true that the spiritual life of Christ through you can be diminished, can be hindered, can be stifled to such a degree that it is not apparent to those around you and even to yourself it is not apparent that there is the life of God thriving in you. I'd say this, though you can never spiritually die in the sense of losing your salvation, it is entirely possible for our relationship, our walk with God to dry up and die on the vine. If we yield ourselves unto sin, it'll produce death in our life. I think Lazarus teaches us this clearly because in Lazarus, though we can make a a comparison with a lost man, Lazarus as an individual, I think more closely aligns with the idea of a saved man. For instance, consider this. Lazarus was known by the Lord. The Lord knew who Lazarus was. They had a relationship. You know, the Bible says there'll come a day when those that have rejected Christ will be cast into outer darkness and the the sentence that will be pronounced over them by the Lord will be this, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. I don't think we can say about Lazarus that the Lord never knew him. The Lord knew Lazarus' name. And you as a child of God that have believed on Christ, you are known in the halls of heaven. You are known in the heart and mind of God. He knows your name. Praise His name. He was known by the Lord. Number two, Lazarus was loved by the Lord. Now, let me say very carefully here, God loves every single lost person as well as loving every saved person. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But when I say that Jesus loved Lazarus, I mean that they had a personal relationship and there was an affection that was born out of fellowship that they had one with another. And on several occasions in our text, it talks about the love that Jesus had. When they send word to Jesus, they say, He whom thou lovest is sick. Later on, when they see Jesus weeping there outside the tomb, they say, Behold, how He loved Him. It was apparent to everyone that Lazarus loved the Lord, and the Lord loved Lazarus. Now that sounds like the relationship of a saved person 
with the Lord. That it's one of love, not one of burden or requirement. Number three, I'd say this, Lazarus was the friend of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Himself uses that terminology. He says, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. In other words, there was fellowship between them. They spent time together. The Bible goes out of its way to describe how that this is that Lazarus that was the brother of Mary and of Martha. Now, why does the Holy Ghost tell the story in that way to us? The reason is because this isn't the first time we've been introduced to this little family of siblings. Uh, we have been to their home in Bethany before because we followed the Lord Jesus there. He's been there. He's eaten meals there. He's spent time there. He was friends with them. They were not strangers to His company. And let me say, listen, child of God, you ought not be a stranger to the company of the Lord. And that leads me to my, to my, not my last point, don't get excited, but of this particular section, of this particular point, of this sub-point, of this main point, the last thing I'll say about that is that Lazarus had fellowship with the Lord. Man, I mean, he, he, he enjoyed communing with the Lord. He sat across the table from him and talked with him. They stayed up, no doubt, late at night, like many of probably of our camp workers did, sitting around spending time together, enjoying each other's fellowship. And here's what I'm trying to say. I'm saying if I'm being objective about this, Lazarus looks more like a saved man than he does like a lost man. It is true that it's appropriate to say, hey, if you're lost, you are dead in your sins and God can give you a new life. But when I read this passage, I see a man that knew God that dies and must be raised again. I think about the statement that Mary, or excuse me, Martha says down in verse 39. Would you notice it with me? The Bible says this, that Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Now, when he says this, Martha, the sister of, of him that was dead, she speaks up and this is what she said to him. Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. I want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you on this thought. By this time he stinketh. In other words, in your life and in my life, spiritually speaking, if we neglect our walk with God and we permit sin to have dominion over us, our spiritual life can degrade to such a degree to where there is nothing appealing about it in the eyes of God. There's nothing that pleases Him. There's nothing that, that, that gives Him encouragement to the degree. This is why I believe if a person walks out of the will of God long enough, there's a good danger God may just take them out of this world to the next one because there's nothing they're benefiting this world for the testimony and name of Christ. They're almost like Lazarus was physically. All they are is just a dead body that's stinking up the space and nothing more. I got good news for you this morning. If your life and mine spiritually has degraded to that degree, can I say there's still hope? She said, Lord, he's been dead four days. Don't you raise him. He's going to stink. But I got news for you. Hey, it don't matter how far you've been out. It don't matter how long you've been out. God ain't give up on you. It may have been four days or 40 years, but God says, I'll raise you from the deadness of your rebellion and your apathy, and I'll restore you to a place of fellowship and life with me and give you a vibrant Christian life that's to the glory of God. Isn't that what He said? This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. I got good news for you. I don't care how been up and twisted up and out you are. God has not given up on you. And He has a desire to bring you into close fellowship with Him. Now, what can we learn when we meditate on this passage, when we think about this passage? Well, I've got a few quick thoughts I want to share with you. Let me say, number one, something about the concept of death. Now, death is something that's been discussed a lot in these modern days. Of course, we've been in what our government calls a pandemic, and there's been many folks that have died that they say have been due to that 
pandemic and people are thinking a lot about the idea of death. But you know, I think sometimes in this, in this day that we live in, we have some different ideas about death than what is actually reality. I, for instance, I think we think of death as a sickness that can be cured. But you know, that is not actually what death is. Let me make three statements about death. And they have a physical truth, but there is a spiritual truth that parallels them. You remember when Jesus said uh, to them, said, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth in verse 11, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. And then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. Here's what I'm saying. They fundamentally did not understand what death was. The Lord Jesus likens it to sleep. And they fundamentally do not understand what death is. To the degree that Jesus in verse 14 had to speak plainly and say, Lazarus is dead. So what could we say is death? Listen to these three statements. Let me say number one this morning. Death is the absence of life. Listen carefully to this. Just as darkness is the absence of light, death is the absence of life. Death does not overtake life. We often say it that way, don't we? We'll say, well, well, death finally caught up with him. But that's not really what happens. Death does not overtake life. Rather, it fills the vacuum that is left when life recedes. In other words, what happens? Death is not a sickness. Death is a condition. And what is that condition? It is when the life of the body has exited, it is no longer present there, and they are left in a dead condition. Now you say, well, preacher, that's good. I appreciate the health class, but what does that teach me? Well, I would say this. There is a spiritual truth here. Spiritual death is not a sickness that overtakes spiritual life. Rather, spiritual death occurs when our spiritual life is neglected and disregarded. In other words, you say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. Uh, people will talk about it sometimes. They get out of the will of God and they'll talk about it like it was hounds that were chasing them, trying to bay them in the woods. They'll talk about it as though sin was, was pursuing after them. And while I understand temptation certainly can seek us out, if we have dried up and died, spiritually speaking, it is not because sin has caught up with us. Rather, it is because we neglected to nurture our spiritual life in Jesus Christ. Whenever we stepped away from the altar, whenever we stepped away from the Lord's table, death began to set in. So death is the absence of life. Let me say number two, death is the anticipated end of life. I feel like I need to say this with a big old fat exclamation point. Because somehow in the past two years, we have come to the belief that we can cheat death. But can I tell you, I hate to tell you this, but unless the Lord tarries His coming, we are all going to die. It is a natural part of the human experience. In fact, I would say it this way. The human body tends and trends towards death. That is the direction we are all headed in. When a baby is born, though there may be things about his biology and his physique that grow and develop and so on, the stopwatch, the timer begins the moment that he is, is conceived and there is a shelf life placed on that baby's life and it may be uh, 50 years or 60 years or 70 years or 100 years, but he is invariably marching towards death. And that baby does not have to do anything to die, but merely wait around long enough and they will die. Sooner or later, death will occur. The human body tends and trends towards death. A person doesn't have to do anything to die. He is on a natural course towards death. Now you say, okay, preacher, I knew that, but what does that tell me? Well, listen, likewise, we don't have to do anything to die spiritually. 
We need only neglect nurturing our spiritual life and we will inevitably experience spiritual death. In other words, a lot of times we'll see people all messed up. We'll say, boy, I wonder what they did. But it might not be what they did. It might be what they didn't do. It might be that they neglected the house of God. They neglected the Word of God. They neglected the prayer calls. They, they neglected obedience to the Lord. And listen, that's all you have to do in order for your spiritual life to diminish and to dry up. I'm saying if we ain't nurturing our spiritual life, we're neglecting our spiritual life. It's one of the two. Man, I mean, it's like a little child. Like if you had a little child and, and just walked away from it and said, all right, now fend for itself. Uh, listen, we call that, uh, we call that uh, negligent homicide, don't we? At least when we believed killing baby was wrong, that's what we called it. Uh, now, in some states, that's called medical practice. But, but uh, in, back when we had a conscience and a soul in this country, we called that negligent homicide to do that to a little baby. You know why? Because we know that little baby is not going to survive on its own. We are either nurturing it unto life or we are neglecting it unto death. Well, the same thing is true of your spiritual life and mine. We're either nurturing it unto life or we're neglecting it unto death. So death is the anticipated end of life. But then let me make a third statement here. Death is the absence of life. Death is the anticipated end of life. But now listen, life then is the antidote to death. If death exists where life has receded, then the way to stem death is to remain alive. Now somebody's going to say, wait preacher, are you saying a person can be biologically immortal? No. The reason why is because our physical body breaks down. But I remember hearing somebody say something. I, I, they were they were talking about eating healthy, and uh, which I don't believe in. And uh, they were talking about eating healthy, and uh, you know they made this statement and said, you know, healthy people die just like unhealthy people do. Now, I please understand some of what I'm saying is tongue in cheek. The Bible says bodily exercise profiteth little, and I'd love to just talk about that word little, but it does say it profit. All right, and I do think our body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. I, I'm not trying to be flippant about that. But understand this, as healthy as you or I might be, sooner or later our body will break down and it will die. That is an inevitable thing. But when that happens, listen to why that happens. It's because something else has receded the life out of our body. It is not that death has conquered life, but rather it is that something else has degraded life to the degree that death is able to set in. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Physiologically, biologically, that's going to be a, 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 a reality of the human condition until God gives us a new body. There's nothing we can do about that. That's the nature of it. I mean, try as you may. Listen, take all the uh, vitamins you want, eat everything green that you can find. I do that. I eat all kinds of green stuff. I, I uh, The mint chocolate chip ice cream, them green Oreos, <laughs> gummy bears, gummy worms, all the food groups. Be as healthy as you want. And I'm not, honestly, I'm not criticizing. That's good. That's great for you. I'm not saying that is a wrong thing. And it may give you a better quality of life. But at the end of the day, it's not going to stem or stay the hand of death. But now wait a minute. Spiritually speaking, those rules do not apply quite the same way. We can choose to yield to the Lord. And remember, the life He gave us is spiritual life. It is not natural life. So you say, preacher, how do I keep from getting in that condition? What do I have to do? Is there a special secret? Is there a special sauce? Is there a book I can read? Is there a way? Is there a strategy? Is there a technique? Listen, here's how you do it. If you stay close to the Lord, it'll keep spiritual death at bay in your life. In other words, don't say to yourself, don't spend all your time trembling at the concept of getting out. Instead, spend some time focusing on the principle of staying in. 
If you'll stay close to God, you, you, you don't have to, you don't have to figure out, hey, listen, when a man builds a fence around his property, he's not building it for this animal, this animal, this animal, this animal, this animal. He's not building it according to what's outside. He's building it according to how he can protect what's inside. And that's where his focus is. And in your spiritual life, you can uh, run around trying to play whack-a-mole with every single thing in your life. Or you can say, I'm going to chase after God. I'm going to pursue Him. I'm going to stay close to Him. And listen, if you'll stay close to the shepherd, He'll keep you in the fold. He'll keep you where you need to be. So we see the concept of death dealt with here. But now wait a minute. What does Martha say? Martha says this, by this time He stinketh. Now I began to think about that. What she means is the process of decomposition has said in Lord. The body now bears irreversible marks of the condition that he is in. And there's nothing you, Lord, or I can do about that. You know, I began to think about that. I, I'm going to say this. I, I've talked about the concept of death. Let me say a word about the course of death. What does it look like when death sets in? I want to read a, 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 a little bit of a, of a paragraph to you, and this is a little bit scientific sounding. Uh, a lot of these words I had to look up. Right, so don't feel bad if you do too. But 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 a lot of these. I, but I want you to listen to this. It describes the process of decomposition. According, if you're eating a McMuffin, put it down right now. This is according to Dr. Arpad A. Vass, a senior staff scientist at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and adjunct associate professor at the University of Tennessee in forensic anthropology. Human decomposition begins around four minutes after a person dies. And it follows four stages. They're called this, autolysis, autolysis, I think it's actually pronounced, bloat, active decay, and skeletonization. Autolysis goes this way. The first stage of human decomposition, autolysis, is also known as self-digestion. It begins immediately after death. As soon as blood circulation and respiration stop, the body has no way of getting oxygen or removing waste. Excess carbon dioxide causes an acidic environment, causing membranes and cells to rupture. The membranes release enzymes that begin eating the cells from the inside out. Rigor mortis causes muscle stiffening. Small blisters filled with nutrient-rich fluid begin appearing on internal organs and the skin surface, and the body will appear to have a sheen due to ruptured blisters, and the skin's top layer will begin to loosen. Stage two is called bloat. Leaked enzymes from the first stage begin producing many gases. The sulfur-containing compounds that the bacteria release also cause skin discoloration. And due to the gases, the human body can double in size. In addition, insect activity can be present. The microorganisms and bacteria produce extremely unpleasant odors called putrefaction. These odors often alert others that a person has died and can linger long after a body has been removed. Stage three is called active decay. Fluids released through uh, orifices indicate the beginning of active decay. Organs, muscles, and skin become liquefied. When all of the body's soft tissue decomposes, hair, bones, cartilage, and other byproducts of decay remain. The cadaver loses the most mass during this stage. And the final one is skeletonization. Because the skeleton has a decomposition rate based on the loss of organic or collagen and inorganic components, there is no set time frame when skeletonization occurs. But oftentimes if you've seen a body that is laid for many, many years, you'll see nothing but a skeleton that is left. Now you say, preacher, why'd you read me that gross article? For this reason, I want you to stop and think about the path that death takes. Because just as when we speak about death biologically as regards how it, it occurs in a person's life, when we think about the course that death takes when it sets in, I think we find some truths 
that applies spiritually as well. For instance, let me say this. When a person dies, here's what happens. Number one, there's a change in feeling. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, they grow cold from the inside out. What happens when a person dies spiritually? They grow cold from the inside out. Let me tell you something this morning. Listen, I'm glad my, my, my Christianity is based upon faith and not feeling. But let me equally say God made us with emotions. And our emotions interact with the witness of the Holy Spirit in our life. And listen, I'm not somebody that's afraid of emotions. I, I think that God has made us as emotional creatures. And oftentimes, the very, emotions are fickle things. You understand that, right? That means they are sensitive. That means that they are apt to wild swings. But you know what that also means? It also means that very often they are the first bellwether of what God is doing in our heart and in our life. And I'm saying this, it ain't a good thing when we can't feel the presence of the Lord anymore. Oftentimes that's the very first step. There is a change in feeling and we grow cold and indifferent to the things of God. Number two, there's a change in flexibility. We read this word a moment ago, the condition known as rigor mortis. And that sets in when the muscles begin to contract. And when that happens, the body is no longer able to be moved or manipulated. In other words, whenever rigor mortis sets in, it just won't move anymore. You could grab an arm and try to shift it, but it'd just go right back in place. You could grab a leg and try to move it or turn it, and it'd just go right back into place. You say, preacher, what happens when a person begins to die spiritually? Well, oftentimes they grow stiff in their response to God. God will try to move them. God will try to, to change them. God will try to transform them. And there's sometimes God will take an arm and pull it over here and it might last for a few days, but pretty soon it just flops back over in the same place that it always was. By the way, you know what that rigor mortis is, right? It's when the muscles contract. Well, you know what the muscles are, right? The muscles are the agent and enforcer of your will. You move your hands and legs by your muscles moving. What happens when they contract? That's the will saying I won't be bent anymore. When a person dies spiritually, what happens? Well, they lock their will down and they say, all right, God, I'm not going to allow you to do this in my life. I'm not going to allow you to work. So there is a change in flexibility. Number three, there's a change in form. I have a really gross story about a possum I could tell here, but we'll save that for later. You come to camp service and maybe we'll talk about it. In other words, this is the stage that's called bloat. And oftentimes, if you've ever seen even a dead animal, you have seen this take place where the gases begin to release. But I, I thought about it this way. There is a change in form that takes place. That body, you know what it does? It swells up. It puffs up. It bloats up. And you know what it reminds me of? Very often, spiritually speaking, one of the indicators that we have died spiritually is we get puffed up in pride. We get swelled up in pride. Hey, how dare God say that about how I'm living? How dare that preacher talk about what I'm going through? Hey, how, how dare they expect me to do this? How dare they expect me to do that? Can I tell you something? I don't mean this in an ugly way. But ain't none of us uh, nothing but a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners that ought to be in hell. We don't know nothing. The moment we begin to think we're something, that's an indicator that something's wrong. I mean, the moment we begin to say, hey, I'm too good for it. Go ahead and stop yourself. Because the truth is, we ain't even too good for hell itself. And oftentimes what will happen, we'll get swelled up in pride. Pride towards others, pride towards God, and that impedes. That's why pride goeth before destruction. A haughty spirit goeth before a fall. The reason is because we get swelled up. And when we're prideful, then God can't deal with us anymore. We won't hear what He has to say. So there's a change in form. And then I thought about this. I, I don't want to be gross, but there's a change in fragrance. 
The Bible, or the, the article called it putrefaction. There's a certain smell of death that sets in. Uh, if you grew up hunting like I did and running around through the woods and grew up kind of semi out in the country, or if you just spent a week at church camp, you was probably sometime or another around something dead. And uh, now some of that was just them kids and they just smelled dead, but they weren't dead. But the body begins to change in the way, and, and it begins to stink. It begins to smell. You know, you say, now preacher, what does that mean? Well, when I think of something beginning to stink, I would say it this way. We have lost our sweet smelling savor to God. You know, Ephesians chapter 5 says this about Christ. It says, be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. In the Old Testament, when they would offer sacrifices, one of the sacrifices they'd give would be at the altar of incense. They would burn incense, and the idea behind it was a picture of your prayers and your worship going up into the nostrils of God and being a pleasant smell unto Him. The book of Ephesians says this, that Jesus Christ is a pleasant odor and smell in the nostrils of God. But then it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. In other words, you and I should likewise be a sweet-smelling savor unto God. Our prayer life, our worship life, our intimate personal relationship with God should be something that God, whenever he, whenever we do it, He just takes in a big smell and He says, wow, how pleasant that is, how precious that is. But you know, when a person dies spiritually, what happens? Their worship dies with them. Their worship dies with them. Their praying dies with them. Their praise dies with them. And pretty soon, they don't have that intimate fellowship with God that they once had. Hey, listen, I, I, there's, <laughs> I want to say this the right way. I'm not saying my worship has always been right. I'm not saying I ain't never done nothing in the flesh when it comes to worship. Man, I'm sure I have. But I'd say this, I'd, I'd rather worship right and every once in a while get it wrong than never worship at all. I mean, I'm being, and I'll say this as a pastor. I mean, you have to make this decision as a pastor. Different people worship God in different ways. I've often said, listen, as long as you're in a language I can understand, uh, then we're okay. As long as you're in a language I can understand, we're, we're all right. And when you're pastoring, you're not just pastoring the church, but you're pastoring the service as well. And, and a lot of times you'll have to, to make decisions as you moderate a service and, and so on and so forth. And, and let me say, sometimes, man, when it gets out of the banks, I'm talking about when God's moving and working on hearts. There'll be people worshiping God and sometimes you might look at them and say, well, I wonder how sincere they are. You know, I wonder, you know, I mean, I know what's going on in their life. I know they ain't living the way that they, you know, and so on and so forth. And you say, preacher, does that bother you? Well, I wish everything in worship was sincere, but I'd say this. I'd rather have a church that worships God. Even if maybe every once in a while there's somebody that, that does something maybe not quite the way that I would or you would, then I would have a dead church that stinks in the nostrils of God. I, there's a change in fragrance, but then let me finally say this, there's a change in fleshiness. The final stage is when there's nothing but the skeleton left. And you know, for a lot of Christians, that's how their life is. There's nothing but the frame, the skeleton left. There's only the bare minimum of what they have to do for God, and there's nothing beyond that. So I think this course of death is very similar. Now you're going to say, well, preacher, that, that, that's terrible. I, I'm burdened. I don't want to be that in my life. But I want you to notice, whenever Jesus comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, there is a crowd that has some concerns over death. 
I wish I could tell you when you go to get right with God that, that your flesh won't persecute you, that, 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 uh, you know, the world won't, per- but there is a crowd that is concerned over that. What was Martha's concern over death? Well, she says this, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. I think basically there are three concerns that she had when she made this statement. Number one, her first concern was this, that it would be impossible to raise him. Why did Jesus wait four days? Have you ever asked yourself that question? He could have come, he could have come four days early by this world's standards, not four days late. But instead, he came four days by our standard late. Of course, he was right on time. God always is. But why did he wait four days? Not three, not two. Why four? Jesus very likely did this in light of the Jewish superstition of that day that said that a soul stayed and hovered near the grave for three days hoping to return to the body. Now, there's no biblical foundation in that. That's not what happens. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But, but very likely, they believed that at that time. Therefore, it was accepted that after four days, there was absolutely no hope of resurrection. So in other words, they believed that in the Old Testament when people were raised from the dead, all that was happening was just sort of a, a very, very proximate rejoining of the body. Like the, the soul's just kind of hanging out like Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know, waiting for somebody to notice it. And, and just waiting for somebody to say, alright soul, now you get in this body. But of course there's no biblical foundation in that whatsoever at all. And I think Jesus waits four days to disprove their fallacy. They thought to themselves, there's no way that He can raise Him. He's been four days. And I say this, and there will be some that will say, Preacher, there's no way God can work in that person's life. They're too far gone. They're too broke. They're too messed up. Man, the things they've been into, there's no way God can work. Man, I'm glad God don't feel that way. I'm sorry if you do. You ought to ask forgiveness and get your spirit and attitude right. Uh, but I'm sure enough glad God don't feel that way. Man, I'm ashamed there's been times I've probably thought that. I need to get my spirit right. But boy, I'm glad God don't feel that way. He says four days. Could have been four years or four million. It wouldn't matter to me. I'm God. I'm the one that gave the life. And I can give it again. Uh, listen, I the, you, you say, preacher, I've done wandered away from God. Yeah, but if you're saved, He's still your God. If you were genuinely born again when you accepted the Lord, He's still your God. That hasn't changed. And you say, preacher, it's too late. It's too late. Well, let's let God decide that. Not us. Let's just come to Him. And let's see what He can do. And you know what I bet we'll find out? I bet He'll just rear back, open that divine mouth and cry our name and pull us out of the deadness that we've got ourselves into. Number two, she could have been saying this. One, that it would be impossible to raise Him. Number two, she could have been saying that it would be incomplete to raise Him. What I mean by that is she could have been saying, and I think she probably was, Lord, the processes of decomposition have already set in. In other words, there isn't as much Lazarus as there once was. His body has begun to decay. The the, the insects have probably begun to consume him and, and he will not be the same person that walks out of that tomb. In other words, she was saying this, there ain't enough left there to raise you know, sometimes we get the idea that we've messed up so bad that there ain't enough left of us for God to do anything with. And there may have been mistakes that you or I have made in our life, and they may limit us in some ways. There may be some things we're just not cut out or fit to do now because of the mistakes that we've made. But don't you think for one moment 
that God has done with you? Don't you think for one moment that God doesn't have a plan for your life? Don't you think for one moment that God's recruiting second-class Christians and second-class citizens and people that are going to have to walk around? Hey, listen, He didn't come in to put a yoke on you. He came in to take a yoke on you. He didn't come in to put chains on you. He came in to take chains off of you. And I'm saying this, there's going to be a crowd that's going to say, Preacher, even if they come back to God, there ain't going to be nothing left. Why don't we let God decide that? I bet this, I think God can give back the years that the canker worm hath eaten. I think He can give back the years that the locust hath eaten. I understand, I understand there's some scars in leaves. I, I understand there might be some things that we have to live with. But don't you dare say God's done with them when God hadn't said I'm done with Him and God has not said I'm done with them. I think she's probably saying it would be incomplete. But then there could have been a third thing. And I, and I think this may have been part of it too. She said, Lord, by this time He's stinking. He hath lain already four days in the grave. I think she might have been saying this, that it would be inappropriate to raise him. That if you bring him out of that grave, it's going to be embarrassing and inappropriate. He's going to stink. He very likely, his body will show the the impact of decay upon him. And what's everybody going to think? By the way, can I say this? Uh, As far as Judaism was concerned, had Lazarus come out of that grave and Martha ran up and threw her arms around her brother, she would have been considered unclean. She would have been considered unclean. What did Jesus say about that whenever He came out? Jesus said, hey, loose him and let him go. Those Jews were all standing around trying to figure out whether it fit in with their concept of God to go up and hug His neck or not. And Jesus said, what are you dummies doing standing around? Go help the guy out of his grave club. He needs some help. What are you doing standing around? And I think they were sitting around, I think they were saying, would it even be appropriate? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be kind of an embarrassment to have him around? Jesus said, what's the matter with you? You think I can't change him? You think I can't change his life? You think I can't make him what I desired him to be? And there's a crowd, listen, there is a crowd that only wants the, the, the perfect, sorted out, bow wrapped up in perfect wrapping Christians to come into their church that don't have no problems, that don't have no, no baggage, that don't have no mistakes. I mean, listen, what they want is a museum for Christianity where you can walk by every perfect little family and see a nice, beautiful display of what a Christian ought to be. Hey, listen, I'm proud for them. That's a great idea. But what about all those dead folks that need life? I'm saying this. You say, well, preacher, sometimes it might be inappropriate. Yeah, listen, I understand as people grow in the Lord, sometimes they do inappropriate things. Sometimes they, 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 uh, sometimes the way they dress maybe ain't the way I wish they'd dress. Sometimes the way they talk maybe ain't the way I wish that they'd talk. Sometimes uh, maybe the way that they view things or believe things uh, maybe ain't the way that I wish that they uh, believe things or viewed things. But I want to say this morning, hey, we ain't never going to help nobody uh, if we won't ever get close enough in their life uh, to minister to them. And I'm just going to say this, I just, I don't go in with that crowd that says, if I can't have them perfect pre-packaged turnkey Christian come through my door. I ain't interested in it. Alright, you go ahead and have all the Pharisees. I'll take every broken, messed up, twisted up sinner I can find and see the gospel of the grace of God change their life. I'd say this. She probably said, you know, this might be inappropriate. This might embarrass someone if he comes out of the grave. Jesus said, I'll let him be embarrassed then. I'll let him be embarrassed then. <laughs> because Lazarus needs to be raised. Now, here's the question. You're going to say, all right, preacher, you got me convinced. You got me convinced that that a person can spiritually decline in their walk with God and and it can bring a deadness into their life. You've got me convinced of what it looks like and how it goes. And and you've got me convinced that God wants to raise them from that deadness. But now here's the question, how? How's He going to do that? Well, how did He do it for Lazarus? Let me say a word very quickly in closing. 
about the conquering of death. The Bible says in verse 43, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was bound with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Let me say number one. Say, preacher, how can, how can I see God begin to change my life and give me the life that I once enjoyed in Him, a vibrant Christian life? Well, let me say number one. The cry must be heard. You've got to listen to His voice. If you won't listen to His voice, can't no one help you. You know why that is? Because His is the only voice. You understand, he did, His voice didn't just pierce the stone over the mouth of that tomb. His voice pierced the veil of death on that day. He didn't just speak into the tomb. He spoke into death's domain and death's halls. And somewhere within it, hey, it's one thing for the eardrums to respond by vibrating to a noise, but that's not what causes a man to get up and walk off. It was when Lazarus's mind and his heart and his soul heard the voice of God, and only Jesus can do that. Listen, I've just, I, I've about come to the place, I'm just convinced if God don't do it for folks, it ain't gonna get done. And I've gotten a lot of peace in my heart and mind as a pastor by coming to that realization. I can try to minister to them. I can try to love them. I can try to preach the Word of God to them. But at the end of the day, hey, it ain't my voice that's going to change their life. It's His voice that's going to change their life. They've got to be willing to hear His voice. I can preach till I'm blue in the face, till I'm sick as a dog, till I'm laid out getting ready to die. But that's not going to change them. The only thing that will change you and me is if we'll listen to the voice of God. When He calls our name and commands us, the cry must be heard. Number two, the crypt must be left. Now, what good would it have done had He raised Lazarus and Lazarus said, Thank you, Lord. Now I'm just going to live here. To Lazarus, his life would have been dramatically changed. But to the rest of the people outside of that, he would have been as good as dead. He would have never sat around a dinner table with them again. He would have never embraced and hugged them again. And he might have had a semblance of life, but I think we could honestly say this. A life lived in a tomb, is it a life at all? Hey, listen, that, they didn't just come down with this idea of lockdown in the past year. <laughs> Amen. I'm just going to say this, man. Lockdown life ain't life. It ain't liberty. It ain't life. It ain't freedom. It's not what... Don't, and don't let anybody convince you otherwise. You know, whatever you believe about what we've needed to do over the past two years, don't think for one moment that this is what they call a new normal. It may be new, but it ain't normal. It ain't normal. And what kind of a life would he really had if he just stayed in that crypt? There might have been some flicker of life within it, but could we even really call it life? And let me say this, if we're going to see our relationship with God be what it needs to be, not only do we need to hear the voice, but we need to come forth. We need to leave the deadness that we've been living in, that sin and that disobedience and that rebellion. We don't need to say, all right, God, thanks for calling my name. Now I'm just going to hang out here like I've always been doing. What good was it all if we don't leave the crypt? We've got to be willing to walk away from those things. And then I'd say this, number three, hey, listen, the cry must be heard and the crypt must be left, but the clothes must be shed. Grave clothes. The Bible tells me he was bound. In other words, it tells me this, the vestiges, the remainders of the grave still had him bound until he put those things off. You know, how do I say this right? The grave clothes didn't kill him, but they were put on him after he was dead. The works of the flesh are not what kills a man's spiritual life. It's his flesh that does it. But when he gets right with God, 
Those works of the flesh need to be put off if he's to enjoy the life that God has for him. Uh, in, in other words, we've got to take that old deadness of our life. Well, how did we get in that shape? We got in that shape by listening and, and operating the energy of the flesh in the first place. So why are we going to walk out of that tomb and then lean on the flesh again? I wonder if Lazarus ever trusted his flesh again. His flesh had put him in that tomb. The arm of flesh had most literally failed him. His body had gave out. But he learned that what his flesh could not do, faith in the Lord could do. He had learned that what his body could not do, his Savior could do. And so he said, I'm not going to trust to my flesh anymore. I'm going to trust to the Lord. I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about being irresponsible as far as your own health and medical science and things like that. I'm talking about spiritually in your life. You have to recognize that it's the flesh that engenders death in us in the first place. It is the flesh that is the seed and the, and the scene and the setting of death. If you let God bring you out of that mess only to go back and lean on your flesh like you did before, guess what's going to happen? You know that Lazarus eventually died. He eventually died, physically speaking. You know why? Because if you go back to the flesh, and I'm not implying that spiritually, personally, morally, Lazarus committed sin in some way, but I'm saying it's a picture of the fact that at the end of the day, the flesh will always fail you. It will always fail you. And so when you get up out of that and turn around and say, all right, I'm going to trust my flesh again, don't be surprised when you wind up back in the tomb again. It's always going to lead you to the same place. So the question now this morning is this. It is not a question of whether it is possible for our walk with God to be less than what He'd have it to be. It, it, we're not discussing anymore whether or not it's possible for us to, to deaden in our spiritual relationship with God. The question is, has it happened in your life? Can you honestly say you're closer to God than you've ever been? You're living for God more than you've ever done. And to the best of your ability, physically and, and mentally and emotionally, you are serving God in the way that you can to the best of your ability. Can you honestly say that? Or would you have to admit that there's been a deadening of your spiritual life. And you know, the question is not, is that going to get better on its own? Because it doesn't get better on its own. And the question is not, does God desire to change that about me? Because God does desire to change that about you. And the question is not, is God able to change that? That's not the question. We've seen, we know He's able to. So there's only one question that remains. Will you be honest with the Lord and will you let Him change you? And will you let Him produce that life in you that He desires for you to have? Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open and you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. One of the things I loved up at church camp is them kids, they didn't wait for nobody to play no piano, man. They just, God was moving on their heart and they already knew what they had to do. So they just got up and went and met Him in the altar. And so if God touched your heart, hey, listen, be like, be like a camp kid this morning. Just go ahead and meet Him in the altar. And uh, don't make Him wait on you this morning. If God spoke to your heart, then meet Him down here and let Him have His will and way in your life. Father, I love You. I thank You for Your Word. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.